to another edition of Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast where we talk about all things from the solo years. And of course, occasionally the Beatles do come up. We are so excited to be with you all tonight. I think this is going to be a great, great show. They're all great, of course, but this one is just a little bit uh, more special. So thank you for- How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, And as you can see, we are joined by two very special guests tonight. So uh, we've got a lot to get to. So let's let's go into it. Uh, Before we uh, get to uh, everything, uh, let me introduce uh, myself, my co-host, and our special guests and why they're here. Um, My name is Kid O'Toole. I'm the author of Songs We're Singing, Guided Tours to the Beatles' Lesser Known Tracks, Michael Jackson FAQ, All That's Left to Know About the uh, King of Pop, and the act you've known for all these years, Fandom and the Beatles, uh, which I co-edited with one of our guests tonight. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, Yes, indeed. I I think you can guess which one. Um, (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Everybody's pointing different. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ken. Everybody's pointing different directions. So we'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. Um, And uh, so uh, now let me first introduce my co-host that I am lucky enough to host uh, the show with uh, every other Monday. He is the co-host of the very popular Paul McCartney uh, centric video cast and podcast, Two Legs. Say hello to Tom Hanyadi. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm wonderful, Kit. And we've got a wonderful, wonderful bunch of people joining us here today. I can't wait to talk about. Yes, indeed. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. It's going to be wonderful tonight. Yes, uh, yes, I think so. Oh, and that's a very appropriate. Uh, <laughs> that is a very appropriate pun. Um, Hi, everybody. Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Don't forget to tip your waitress. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and next, he is the host of the very popular YouTube channel, Mean Mr. Mayo, where he talks about all things uh, collecting, uh, mainly Beatles uh, uh, centric and solo centric, but not entirely. He talks about about uh, other uh, groups as well. He has a show on there as well called Fab Gab uh, and uh, many, many other uh, uh, delights on the, on his channel. So uh, say hello to Joe Mayo. Hello, Joe. Hare Krishna, everyone. Thank you very much for that introduction. 
Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, also we have kind of a legend in uh, the Beatles world and a very, very busy man. He is the co-host of the also very popular podcast, Things We Said Today, the long-running syndicated uh, show, Every Little Thing, where he plays just that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every Little Thing from the Beatles and solo years, often organized around really clever uh, topics. And if, as if that weren't enough, in addition to those, this show, he also has uh, Ken Michaels Radio, which is on YouTube, where he interviews uh, everybody from authors to musicians to YouTube stars, uh, mm-hmm. you name it. Uh, so say hello to you, you, the man that everybody knows and loves. Ken Michaels. Hello, Ken. Thank you, Kit. You're going to write all the introductions for me from now on. And <laughs> Gopala Krishna. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Whatever that means. There you go. Yeah. I don't know either, but right on. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> man, as you can tell, we have two very special guests. And of course, they are very familiar faces uh, to our show. We are just thrilled to have them back on. The reason they're on is because of this book right here, which just came out recently, All Things Must Pass Away, Harrison Clapton and Other Assorted Love Songs. Uh, And it's a really fantastic book. We can't wait to get into it. Banger. It's a banger. And (laughs) (laughs) yes, indeed. And and these are the two authors. And uh, we are just so excited to have them on. Uh, First, Jason Krupa. He was previously with us, if you recall, uh, talking about Phil Spector and his production style. We are excited to have him back. He is also the host of Producing the Beatles, which if you haven't heard it, check it out. It is just a fascinating podcast that breaks down all of the production techniques that the Beatles use, their instrumentation, even for somebody like me whose layperson is not technical, uh, he, he explains it so well, you, you really have to check it out. So Jason, welcome back to Talk More Talk. Thank you. Thank you. You forgot yes. my ninja training, but otherwise everything is <laughs> nailed it. They're okay. <laughs> Next time, though. <laughs> all right. There you go. And we want to welcome back our friend. Uh, you know, he can't be on here as much as uh, he'd like, but uh, but we're so glad to have him back. Uh, he is the author of so many books that uh, I can't name them all, or we wouldn't have time. <laughs> It'll fill up the hour. I don't yeah. have as many hands to hold them all up, you know. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but uh, but you know him from so many books, including uh, John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life, uh, the two-volume biography of George Martin, uh, Maximum Volume, and um, Sound Pictures, uh, The Beatles Encyclopedia, and Solid yeah, state. Known for all these Solid years, state. Phantom and the Beatles, and, <laughs> and and many, many more. Ken Womack. Ken, good to see you, my friend. Oh, thanks, Kitten. It's great to be back with my TMT colleagues. Oh, <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you back. So, as we said, we are here to talk about the new book. We also want questions from all of you who are tuning in tonight so we are going to be monitoring those comments as well and get to as many questions as we can uh they will take any questions about the book about uh eric clapton and uh george harrison's 
you know, their friendship, their creative um, uh, partnership, and their time working uh, on uh, All Things Must Pass, uh, Eric Clapton's time with Derek and the Dominoes, Blind Faith, Yardbirds. I know I'm missing a bunch of others uh, because he, he was in a lot of bands and so, uh, and so on and so forth. So, uh, but before we get to that, as always, Ken Michaels is our man with the news. So, Ken, take it away. Okay, thank Unintended. you for the ticket. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to keep the news as brief as possible because I know we just want to focus on talking with uh, Jason and Ken. But uh, today, uh, Ringo posted a video message basically saying that this coming <clears throat> Thursday, he'll have a special message that he will let us know about at 4 p.m. Pacific time or 7 p.m. Eastern time on something called Talk Shop Live. And I posted uh, the link for that on my Facebook page and spread it on other pages too. So basically he made an announcement that he's about to make another announcement for this the, uh, Thursday. The 50th so, anniversary um, release for Blind Man film, I hope. <laughs> I don't think that's it. I'm, I'm guessing it's for his uh, next EP. EP, that's, absolutely. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Which probably will come out September or October, I guess. Also, good news, the McCartney 3 Imagine album is the first remix album to hit number one on Billboard's U.S. album top sales chart in 10 years. It's number one in album sales, number one, it's the number one rock album, and number one vinyl album, and on Billboard's top 200 albums charts, it debuts at number 19. All right. Paul McCartney reposted a photo of him getting vaccinated from a while back with the message, be cool, get vaxxed. No doubt because of COVID cases rising and the Delta variant spreading. This is to encourage those that still haven't done so yet. Paul also sent out a video message wishing the great Tony Bennett a happy 95th birthday. Paul is quoted as saying, I get a kick out of Tony Bennett <laughs> turning 95 today because I love him and his music. And I love his son, Danny. Happy birthday, Tony. The legendary singer turned 95 on Tuesday this week. Together, they recorded the duet, The Very Thought of You. Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin are both interviewed in Rolling Stone discussing the McCartney 321 series, The Art of Creation and Songwriting, the upcoming Get Back film, and more. Above all, you get to see the admiration that McCartney and Rubin have for each other. Rubin even admitted to collecting every Beatle bootleg and outtake. Another new book is out, and this one is called Listen to What the Man Sang, The Casual Fan's Guide to Paul McCartney. It's by David Stiberski. Uh, Amazon says the book, quote, serves as a guided bio biographical playlist that combines the man and his music and puts his creative output in a human context. It's a career-spanning story that's told fittingly through the lens of the man's best work. All the while, it reflects on the experience of being a McCartney fan and invites the uninitiated to discover their own favorites. Again, the book is now available. And finally, we're sad to report um, that the Fest for Beatle fans is being postponed again. And it will return, hopefully, <laughs> Next year, April 1st through the 3rd at the Hyatt Regency on the Hudson due to, of course, the spread of COVID. 
Which isn't maybe really as the, an April Fool's joke. They, I they was just going to say it wasn't uh, the perfect date. <laughs> no, no, I mean they could say that it, that it was canceled again. And then right. say, April Fool's. Fool's on. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's sad. But I really think Mark made the right move. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Better be safe than sorry. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's it. Believe All it or not. Right. Kept okay. it short and sweet. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, as always. All right. Well, as I said, we have a lot to get to. So um, uh, all of you watching, start uh, sending in your questions. Uh, we will get to as many as we can. Uh, by the way, Jason, uh, viewer Susan Gagney said she's a big fan of your podcast and, and uh, says uh, you do such a great job on it. So thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Okay, so um, let's uh, let's kick it off uh, by saying, first of all, um, I'm, I'm sure I speak for everyone here when I say really enjoyed this. Um, you know, it's a very thought provoking uh, book. I mean, you know, talking about, you know, contrasting, comparing and contrasting their backgrounds, how they work. Um, you know, it's it's just, a, you know, fascinating. Uh, study. And one thing that I always, whenever I've interviewed an author, I, I kick it off by saying is, is sort of getting down to why uh, you wrote the book is, you know, we, we've, of course, we in the fandom, you know, we know that they've been, you know, we're friends for many, many, many years. We know they, you know, collaborated on a number of songs and all. What what did you want to accomplish? You know, why did you want to focus on their friendship and creative partnership? And it's, and that's to both of you. Sure. Uh, and I, I have a, I think a, a unique way of kicking it over to Jason in just a second, but, um, <laughs> oh you know, <laughs> um, these are, these are great stories, right? And they need to be told in one place, you know, mm. so that, uh, readers, lovers of music can uh, find themselves in the spaces where they're celebrating these records and getting a sense of, of how they unfolded before they became settled questions, right? Um, when they were just uh, the germs of ideas, much less ideas. So um, I, I don't want to speak for Jason on this, but we really, I'm, but I'm going to, you know, we, <laughs> We really like those kinds of books that really take you into a place where you can, um, where you can experience those stories as they unfold. And and then there's the issue of what writing under duress, Jason. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what did something happen last year? I don't. Is it? Uh, I mean, yeah, there was a little. There, it it actually helped me because I had something to focus on. So. Uh, in addition to the world sort of falling apart, having a, a book to say, okay, every day I get up and this is what I go to and I work on, uh, was great. But I, I agree with what Ken says. It's, you know, I, I wrote what I wanted to read. I wanted mm. to discover things about these albums and about these people that uh, when I was doing interviews and I was researching and I was sending Ken things that I found, he was sending things that he found. Um, we were answering questions that we sort of had for ourselves. And I honestly, at the beginning, didn't realize how little research had been done on All Things Must Pass. I thought, you know, it was somewhere, it was out there. And as I started looking into it, uh, Ken actually said, he goes, These, this record's kind of a blank, isn't it? Hmm. And so that just, 
that was that was great to be able to fill in that blank with interviews and and bust some myths and and uh, and sort of reconsider our thinking about about you know how these albums were made and what the conditions were and what the what the dynamic what the creative dynamic was. Absolutely. I have some questions already, if I may. That sound sure. interesting. Uh, Mark, uh, sorry get, forget your name wrong. Zutkoff says, "What was the thought process behind opening the book with eighty-three pages recapping George and Eric's history?" Ah, man, I knew people were going to ask questions. <laughs> <I didn't> ask. <laughs> well, you I don't know, know if that was. It doesn't seem sarcastic. This was the. No, no. So, uh, we uh, and we weren't doing that. That was not in our original plan. Um, but what happened is, uh, actually I penned that prologue and we got to talking about them and how very different they were, especially that image that, that George Harrison had of Eric being lonely. Um, and while some readers may be familiar with those biographical years and the early stories of, of George and Eric, many are not, and, and they are germane because these are two guys who uh, come from very different places and backgrounds. And, and that does have a significant effect on how their story unfolds and, and how their collaborations when they occur also unfold. I agree. And I mean, obviously I agree. Um, or he would have vetoed it. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I would have furious text back and forth. No, I mean, as the story unfolds, I, I hope people see that, that, you know, especially in Clapton's case, um, this, this sort of dictates, you know, that a lot of the decisions he's making, whether it's he's, you know, he's leaving brand, bands preemptively, as, as Ken has pointed out um, before, which I, you know, that was something that I hadn't really, hadn't really clicked with me. Ken, Ken put all that together. He's leaving these bands and he's got this, this sort of, feeling of abandonment from childhood that he's repeating in his adult life mm. and 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 this sort of self-sabotage that he just plays over and over and over again and uh, and that also plays into his relationship with with patty um i mean one of the th we didn't put a fine point on this but i think you know at the beginning it it is very it is very much on george to see eric and see this person that he wants to reach out to and he can he he keeps that friendship going and he befriends him and i think you know as time goes on it becomes more of a give and take later on but but especially toward the beginning um you know george is is being very kind and generous toward him yeah yeah and i i think that's true that you know what you you were saying about his issues of abandonment because that does make more sense than when you know, you think about all the different bands that Eric Clapton was in and that he wasn't in them long uh, and, and right. would leave. Uh, and yeah, his background, when you described it, you thought, oh, that makes sense, you know, why he would do that. And we also saw the, the Eric Patty relationship. I, I was loathing having to address this because I just <laughs> cannot stand the tabloid, you know, uh, undercurrent of that. And, and fortunately, you know, we were able to, to view it from, again, that sort of childhood trauma that both he and Patty had and, and discuss that in the, in, the, in, the, in the framework of a trauma bond, which, you know, that's, that's sort of the current psychological language for it. I know, I know in you know, the past, there've been different terms and in the future, there'll be different terms for it. Currently, that's, that's what it's being called. It's two people who have had, you know, these terribly traumatic childhoods and they're, you know, of course there was a physical attraction between them, but 
on an emotional level, they're, they're sort of addicted to chaos. And, and we see that once they finally get together, they, you know, they play that out. They do not have a happy uh, romance. Right. That's yeah, it's a great question, Mayo. I, I, I would be curious if he thought that if the, uh, if the listener thought that was a good idea or not, because we, we really did kick that around a lot. And we, I, I would, I would say, even though we didn't put too fine a point on this, since we take it the other direction, to, to the end, at least, of George's life plus one year, it felt right to have that earlier section. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, Tom, uh, did yeah. you want to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You know, I felt the same way while reading it. I was like, okay, why are we going through this backstories and everything? But as I'm reading it, I'm learning, I'm learning so much. And I'm real, was really happy that you guys took that approach. And then obviously you guys answered that question that wasn't really going to uh, be going that direction at first. But, but I mean, while you guys are researching Clapton, because, you know, yeah, the tragedy, I mean, he did, you know, his youth was a little bit tragic. I mean, but you know, the friendship between him and, and George seemed like an unlikely one because one, he, you know, he pretty much lifts his nose up to pop, you know, pop singers. I mean, you know, pop music in general. And plus he's, you know, lusting over his wife. It just didn't seem like a, an ideal friendship at first. I mean, what were you guys thoughts as you guys were, you know, researching and, and, and writing about Clapton? Well, that's so good. You know, in a way though, their their friendship keeps overcoming these things right right <laughs> right. right yeah i think he, I, uh, I think george uh, described uh, patty as his what his uh ex-wife-in-law or something like how how what how did he put it he, he described Cla- Cla- clapton as his husband-in-law husband-in-law that's what it <laughs> yeah. was yeah, yeah. It's, thank you yes well, i mean yeah i i thought about this a lot uh, because it does seem weird i mean I think there are there are a lot of different factors. One, there's the attitude toward you know possessiveness in relationships and the whole free love thing, which you know mm-hmm. that's one layer of it. I think another layer that we can't really discount and that none of us as regular non rock stars can really understand is that they were mm-hmm. part of a very small rarefied group. And as you know, as they got to know each other and they're the sort of the the pressures that that keep people together in it. And not necessarily a click, but in those in those little those little sort of celebrity groups where you kind of have each other to rely on. And they you know they bonded on music, they bonded on yeah. guitars, um, and that we talk about this uh, you know at, at not great length in the book, but we talk about the Delaney and Bonnie uh, tour in mm. December 1969, which which was really important. George spends two weeks on tour with them with Clapton, and I think it's it that's really critical for them because George discovers something that he's been missing in the Beatles. And, and he shares this with Clapton, you know, Clapton's having a good time. And he, you know, again, he can't decide where he wants to be. He's sort of, maybe I'll be with Delaney and Bonnie. Maybe I'll (laughs) do this. Maybe I'll do that. You know, um, but I, you know, I think that's an important moment. So I think there are a lot of different factors at play here that, that go into forming and, and, and cementing this relationship. It's not any, any one factor. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like both of them were encouraging each other to, you know, continue to grow as musicians and, you know, and artists and whatnot. So I I, I saw that as a building block to their relationship. Uh, One thing I also liked, um, 
you know, reading about in early 1970, George is still optimistic that the Beatles are going to continue to record. I mean, how much stock do you guys put into to that? Do you think, you know, he really thought that they were going to do that? Or was he just saving face for the whole McCartney, you know, blowing up the Beatles thing? I, I mean, I think on some level he had, I mean, he talked about it so much. Right. Um, there, you know, we, we cite number, a number of interviews where he brings this up and, and mentions it. So some of it may, you know, he's a director of Apple, so he has to put on a good face for right. the company. Um, but, you know, we have that quote from Patty in the book where, where she says, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing, I can't remember the exact quote, but she says something about how, you know, George kind of didn't want them to break up. He was very sad about it because they'd been together mm. all these years, you know, mm. and it, it, that was a very intense relationship, you know, to experience all that with, with those other three people to, to let go of that right. had, had to be a huge thing to, to address. You know, you don't just kind of come out and accept that, oh, you know, it's over. With. Right. I was kind of surprised to find that in one of the interviews that George gave that he actually mentioned the whole idea of making another album mm -hmm. like that September 1969 meeting. meeting. Yes. And yeah. He actually said three from John, three from Paul, not the four, but, right. but I mean, the, <laughs> right. Whole, right. the whole concept of that. Yeah. And he brought yeah. that up in an interview. Yeah. So it's, I mean, and, and that was not just the next month. It was several months later. So this is clearly on his mind. This is clearly in the air. Um, you know, I, he doesn't know what exactly what's brewing with Paul. Paul has kind of cut himself off from the rest of the band. And so, you know, that's a, that's a whole unknown. But I think George is speaking from where he thinks things are going to go. Mm. Interesting. Um, one other thing before I turn it over, you know, there's, there's a bunch of controversy surrounding the song It Don't Come Easy, you know, how much George actually did for the song for Ringo. I mean, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think, you know, he did quite a bit and he didn't want to take credit for it. You know, that's it's just being a, a friend to Ringo. Um, yeah, the demo's pretty revealing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, Ringo has said publicly that George wrote a verse and a bridge and he was specific yeah. about what George wrote. So that's part of it, but it's not all of it. Yeah. And, you know, very often fans will respond because they they feel that how could how could Ringo possibly write something this good? So, uh, you know, um, there's no doubt about it. George has his fingerprints on the song, but most of the song is supposed to be Ringo's. Yeah. But, and I but, think you know, George produced it and, you know, big part yeah. with the guitar playing and everything. And as a yeah. matter of fact, the, the intro of It Don't Come Easy is very much like what was played on Badge, that guitar. Yeah. Break. <laughs> right. So, that, right. That yeah. Le Leslie guitar. Yeah. Yeah. It's very similar. You know, um, there's a, another aspect when you think about George during this period. You know, Jason just mentioned he's a director of Apple. He is perhaps the most engaged member of Apple during this point and yes. henceforward, right? Mm -hmm. Because while to different extents they'd all been nurturing Apple acts, George is the one who kind of sticks with that program mm. um, for a while and certainly longer than the others. Mm. And that's, you know, that quote in, in, uh, in early 70, where he's talking about having a house band for Apple artists, he's right, envisioning yeah, this yeah. as a, as something moving forward where he's, you know, he's going to produce more people and the, the label is going to be active and, and release more acts, you know, 
in in the next year, however many years in the future. Yeah, that really, was a brilliant idea. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the whole Friar Park backstory too. So yes. great job on that. You Thank know, you. and then all the all the the things that he took from the surroundings and put them into songs. Like you know, yesterday, today was tomorrow. You know, and uh, you know, I, I really dug that. So so kudos. I mean, I almost felt like the same way while while we were reading uh, the John Lennon book, 1980. I mean, it was almost, it's part of the, Friar Park is part of the story, just like the Dakota was part of, you know, Lennon's last, or last year's. Um, Ken? Yep. Um, I want to get more into the relationship of George and Eric and try and understand it better because for most of the book, and it's great to, to understand, uh, you know, Eric's upbringing and his feeling of abandonment and all, but, you know, I get the feeling that basically their relationship was, you know, it, it mainly concerned their love of music and guitars. I didn't really sense, in other words, uh, I felt like there was an admiration between the two, but I didn't really feel a sense of, you know, love. <laughs> I hate to say it, between the two of them. Was it more of, you know, a work relationship or did they share anything more in common aside from Patty? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like uh, spirituality or anything like that? Was it strictly the music that kept them together? And maybe George feeling sorry for Eric? God, it's a tough one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give that to Ken. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is, there's no doubt that it's a kind of mutual admiration society. And also uh, just the sense that they're both rooting really hard for each other. Uh, you know, these are guys, remember, we have to go back to, to 1970 again. They're not, Ken, they're not, you know, as sensitive and open with their feelings as you and I are, mm. you know, particularly about the fact that Don't. we share the same, the same name, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, you think about it for a moment though, you know, um, while George is very well known during this period to speak for hours about his mm. spirituality right. and hold court in that way you know they really are expressing a lot of their friendship through music you know and remember these are young guys you know they're very mm. young they're not 30 <laughs> um, yeah you know they're 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 not any different from uh, i would imagine a lot of friendships which are about uh, particularly you know not to get all masculinist but often those friendships are based upon shared passions right you know um i could be hunting uh, but it, it happens to be uh you know or cars or what have you but in this case it it you know it happens to be that they're these these folks who love the guitar and they're gearheads and and that's where they find themselves and mm. And they do want to see each other succeed. I mean, I love the story. We talked about Bangladesh and I'm looking at Mayo's shirt there, but um, you know, the story of George and Patty helping Eric to just even show up for that to me is very powerful. You know, that would have, think about it if with, with some of the things that had already been said about their, their shared relationship, the three of them, that would be easy to say, you know what, we're not going to go pick Eric up at Hurtwood Edge <laughs> and, and get him to Madison Square Garden. We're just going to, we're going to pass on that. Uh, but they don't do that, you know, and there are a number of moments of, of sacrifice where um, they push the self out of the way like that and they still show up for the gig, whatever the gig is. 
Um, I find that really touching. And, and there are lots of stories like that with Harrison in general. You, yeah. you know, guys, uh, you know, as far as talking about the relationship between the two of them, I, I wanted to say one thing that I've always thought was that it seemed a lot like George kind of needed Eric to help him get his toe in the water with things like we're talking about, like, say, the Prince's Trust concert in 87. Eric's there. Uh, 1991 Japan. You know, Eric kind of like, you know, gave him George the, right. the, the push. And it always seemed like, you know, Eric had to take George by the hand a little bit at times. I thought it seemed like he felt comfortable having Eric around a lot of times. And of course, while my guitar gently weeps, we know that, you know, uh, I don't know if I've sensed it so much the other way around, reciprocated, if you will, the other way around. Uh, and Eric's part. What, what do you think? You think uh, George uh, kind of leaned on Eric a lot? I don't know about leaned on. I think, I think, uh, you know, by that point later on, they you know had a much different relationship and had been going on for many years uh, as opposed to what it was early on. And I thought, I think, you know, Eric saw maybe he could, he could get George out on the road. He could, he could get him to tour. And um, so I, you know, I think that's the point where Eric is giving something back to George early on it. I mean, from the outside, we can never really say for certain what, you know, what the intricacies of a relationship are, whether it's friendship or marriage or whatever from the outside, but just from what we can, we can see from the outside evidence, it does, I mean, George was getting something from that relationship with Eric. He was, he was, you know, whether it was, whether it was just the musical aspect of it or, you know, I think like, again, the Delaney and Bonnie tour is very important. He's getting something more than just music. He's getting a camaraderie. He's getting a sense of community. Um, and specifically with Eric, I mean, I think he enjoyed playing with, with Delaney and Bonnie, but I think, you know, with Eric, that was where he was really, really connecting. Um, think about it, you know, as you, you just said, right. I mean, George isn't going to go. <laughs> if, no, no. Uh, if he isn't cajoled into those moments. Um, right. And uh, Eric can do it where others can't. And we know they tried. <laughs> Right. Um, you know, but Eric was was ultimately successful. Interesting. Do you think there was any competitiveness competitiveness between the two of them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Clapton comes out has come out and said that pretty pretty bluntly um, mm. that they were competitive. Um, and you know, to his credit, Clapton in later years has said you know he sort of owned up to the fact that he was basically wanting to be what he wanted what George had. You know, he basically wanted to be George Harrison. Uh, he wanted his beautiful wife and he wanted his success and you know he's in this great band um you know what he didn't want that friar park electric girl. <laughs> <laughs> i'm telling you it's got to be big right yeah. oh yeah <laughs> there are light there are lights in the caves too i mean that, that all yeah. has to add up wow uh but this, was is, it this is I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ken. Did it work the other way? Because I don't really see George as being a very competitive person. I mean, he strove to get rid of ego, you know, sure. as we know. Sure. So, you know, George, I kind of felt like after all things must pass on the concert for Bangladesh, he got so much out of his system and he had all this success, I think beyond his wildest imaginations with all things must pass that he wasn't really as, um, he wasn't trying as hard to have success. I mean, he, he accomplished what he set himself out to do, but he still continued to put out really good music. 
It just sure. didn't matter as much to him to stay on top, you know? Well, look, they're, they're each providing each other with stages, but in different ways. Eric, in, in the cases that Jason just described, those are literal stages, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and diff- with different kinds of experiences, George is providing a stage. I mean, who gets the first lead guitar line on All Things Must Pass? Yeah. Right? Nope. You know, Eric. who... Uh, Eric. Mm-hmm. Providing that opportunity for him, even though he may have had ulterior motives on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. You know, that's not a stage that hurt Eric at all. No, <laughs> um, and that's right. not to say that you know, Eric is enormously successful in his own right, but it is a different level of experience than George Harrison's having. And, and one of the things that just makes George so interesting to me, and I think all of us, is the fact that he has this, this aspect of generosity um, right. to mm-hmm. him. That mm-hmm. or did he just think that Clapton was better than him and more equipped to do us better solos than than George. I don't know well, if I'd he, go that far. No, I mean, I, okay. I, I mean, didn't George say something uh, like to the effect that, you know, he, he, he brings Eric in and it gets the others to behave, you know, just right. sort of like, you know, we have, we have a stranger in the house. So, you know, keep it together, kids. <laughs> Same uh, George, thing with Billy Preston. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had a, uh, a couple of people seem to feel uh, this is a technical question, really, about the yeah. music more. But uh, two people s- seem to feel this way. They say uh, on I Remember Jeep uh, says both the book and the box set say that uh, George played the Moog uh, synthesizer live during the recording. But their ears seem to, to feel that it, the, the Moog parts came from the electronic sound album. Can you shed any light on this? But yeah, I, already I mean, I, I mean that, that's uh, as far as I know that is true. Uh, I haven't lined them up in you know in a music editor, audio editor to, to test it, but I but somebody else has. I've seen posts mm. about that, so that does seem to be the case. One thing, I mean, we have to own up to a couple of errors that we we didn't have enough information for at the time uh, in the book, and one of them is. Um, is the date of recording of that track, which we had as being 1970, but it's actually 1969, which is in the you know the Uber box in the notes. Mm. Um, it was from a, from a, I guess, provisionally a Plastic Ono band session, even though John and Yoko seem maybe to have been involved in the mixing, but not the recording. Um, that's that's maybe a, <laughs> a a tangent we don't want to go off into as to what the Plastic Ono band could encompass. Um, but yeah, so that, that was 1969. That's a, something he obviously remembered and had some sort of fondness for and thought he would pull into this, uh, into the third disc of all things must pass. Okay. We have a Peter Hicks question. Uh, how did George and Eric's friendship really start? Who reached out to whom? And I said, when did they get together between 1964 and when, uh, Eric was playing on Wonderwall? Read the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the book. book in the book. It's in the book. The book, yeah. That's yeah, the answer. It. That's the answer. It's in the book. The answer's at the beginning of the book, not the <laughs> end. It's at the end. Oh, yeah. Very good. I see what you yeah. did there. There we go. Look at that. It's at the beginning. <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. Okay. Well, you know, to, to, to address that, though, I mean, they, they did spend quite a bit of time together when they could. But remember... Those are crazy years, you know. They meet, they have mm-hmm. a connection, um, 
they they stay in as close a touch as you can during that period. But, you know, the Beatles are still barnstorming the world until uh, 66. Uh, Eric is, you know, breaking up one band after another <laughs> uh, as his, his want. Takes a lot um, of energy. It does, you, you know. Uh, my favorite one is Blind Faith, as we've talked about before, mm. where he's actually breaking them up in his head before they right. play their first live <laughs> note in performance. Um, talk about your preemptive breakups. Uh, so, uh, but, but, you know, things do begin to settle down when they settle down and they both get their estates, right, uh, in fairly close proximity one to another, um, you know, which continues on to uh, to Friar Park. They still live in a relative close proximity and they have more time on their hands, you know, particularly after Cream uh, stops doing their thing, you know, when he breaks them up. So. Hmm. Hmm. I, I wonder if he would have joined the Beatles uh, when get Eric Clapton uh, or something. I wonder if the Beatles would have stayed together, maybe in that case, that would be the <laughs> maybe a success story. That's an interesting question, you know, I, and, and you know, there's also the issue of John Lennon's remark, right, in January yeah. 1969, get Eric. Right. Yeah. And of course, I, it, for all of Eric's um, trauma, which we've spoken about now at great length, I think there's no way Eric ever takes that gig, right? I mean, do you agree, Jason? Yeah, that's not going to happen. I mean, may, you know, I never thought of, about that until this moment, but you know, maybe John, there's some recognition in John that Eric kind of craves that, that spot that he's, he's coveting what George has, you know, uh, that's just, but he might not want, but he might not want that from John. Mm, no, 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 Even though he agrees, you know, obviously to perform with him. Right. Uh, yeah. Fall, right. Uh, you know, he has his, his own misgivings about John. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm speaking from John's point of view. This is total, total speculation. I have no base. I'm just sort of wondering, like, maybe John was perceptive enough to realize that Eric sort of coveted what George had. Um, mm. Who knows? Who knows? I don't think Eric would ever have been happy to have had the level of success and the craziness that the Beatles had. He yeah. didn't want that wow. kind of thing. Well, and he would have had to break though. them up. I mean, he would have had to break up yeah. the Beatles. So I'm yeah. sure he wanted, would have yeah. wanted the stability, though, of knowing of being in a group for as long as George was in a group. I wonder. Only if they play the pure blues, though. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, he was right. a he was a music yeah. snob. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. Um, just jumping ahead in in the book, um, one of my my favorite parts was when you sort of compare and, and contrast the making of All Things Must Pass and Layla. Um, I, I, that was absolutely fascinating. And, uh, but, and one of the things that I found the most fascinating was not only just the, the nuts and bolts making of, of the albums, but you know, sort of com comparing that you know, these were two artists that were creating what became you know, their artistic statements and kind of their debut was of, of them as independent, you know, sort of important artists. And they experienced, I mean, they, they you know, they knew what they wanted to do, but, you know, they, they seem to encounter quite a bit of, you know, confidence issues. Uh, George certainly did. Um, and, and I think, you know, Eric Clapton, um, 
certainly did uh, in his own way. Um, you know, did that surprise you as as you were researching the two of them creating these these albums? Um, you know, was it was that a surprise to you that that they were, you know, at times not confident taking this big step? I mean, absolutely. I, I sort of going into this had the impression that George was just raring to go and like, okay, here I go. I'm going to make my album, yeah. right? I've got all, I got 30 songs. I just need to get them out, right? And there was some element of that. But there's also, you know, there's there's the quote where he, he talks about, you know, being uncertain if anybody's going to like these songs because he, yeah. had, he had sort of been con- conditioned all this time in the Beatles where they're not necessarily rejecting songs, although in some cases they certainly do. But um, he talks about, how they wouldn't get a song very quickly like they wouldn't take the time to sort of you know right. feel it or feel it out and say right. okay you know what is this song about and you know let's get a vibe for it and it was it was it, you know that's that's john and paul centric um behavior in that band they're really sort of driving things so if they're not going to engage in something it's not going to go anywhere and george sensed that and all things must pass is a perfect example they try the song out they rehearse it nobody gets it. it you know they barely get through any any full version and and he just you know abandons it because he realizes they're not they're not going to get anywhere with it the beatles are not gonna gonna give this the energy it needs and so he's you know he's uh he's doing this with these other musicians and all for the all things must pass sessions and he's realizing that they're responding positively and, and Alan White, even, you know, it's funny, the contrast between the way the Beatles responded to All Things Must Pass and Alan White saying, when I asked, I, I walked him through every session, just I, anybody I interviewed, I walked through every session chronologically and, and got their memories. And he said, I, I brought up All Things Must Pass. And he said, with a song that good, it was just easy to play. Mm. So, you know, he, he got sympathetic musicians and, and they responded well to these songs which is exactly what he needed um but it, yeah it was i mean i think it's it's understandable that he would go into this with a certain amount of expectation of like well you know people have have not really been receptive to my songs all these years so why would they be receptive now right yeah and those three judges were lennon mccartney and and martin yeah you know who were the gatekeepers and of course on the flip side you've got eric who by his own admission his whole life was a crisis of confidence, right? You know, uh, he would need folks to provide him with that kind of external, um, uh, I guess, gratification to say, it's all right. <laughs> You've done okay here. You know, uh, he really craved and, and needed that. And and that's where they are very similar, mm. at least at that point. Right. Yeah. And, and it seemed like Dwayne Allman was a real turning point for him. Uh, in making Layla, you know, that 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 was, a, you know, really to uh, create a force for him and, a, and a, you know, where he really felt like we've got something here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah the Sky Dog. And uh, but, you know, what's interesting, you know, we we spoke with Alan Parsons, who said if anybody had a guitar in, in the in the All Things Must Pass session, right. they could play, you know, just right. plug in. Right. Um, it's interesting that there is for a moment at least, although it's a much shorter moment, the making of Layla, there is a kind of ragtag atmosphere to, to how those songs were, were concocted. You know, several weren't ready when they, when they showed up in, in Miami at all. 
so there was a lot of uh, a lot of creative work right there on the ground just to have an album, much less a double album. That's another thing that's fascinating, right? We're talking about five records worth of material. <laughs> yeah. And, we're, you know, the, George's process is very, you know, very deliberate. He's record, he records all the, you know, the bas- backing tracks with, with Spectre, who has a very specific way of working. And then he, then he works on overdubs and then he does the orchestral overdubs, which he is directing. He's, Spectre's not involved in that. He's telling John Barham what he wants him to write and then Barham works out the voicings, the orchestral voicings. Um, and then they go into mastering. And then, you know, that takes five months. And then, mm. and then Layla's finished, you know, in, in a matter of weeks. Oh. So it, it's, in a, they didn't have a lot of material when they walked into a session. So it's very seat of your pants versus, you know, George for the setting things up and, and going through methodically. Interesting. Um, yeah, I want to ask about the, the list on page 119 here. You got... Uh, well, that's obviously Jason's fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's you. You guys did a good job of putting in here when, with, with the people and when they were available to record on All Things Must Pass. I mean, was this carnal knowledge? I mean, did, was this stuff you guys had to dig for to find out when these people were available? These artists were available to perform uh, with George on that album. This it it sort of came through the research as I was looking mm-hmm. up, you know. I, the first thing I did is is I made a timeline of the of the entire year, and then as we went, we sort of filled in you know dates and and what we could find, and then more things would come, more things would appear, and and then I started realizing, like wait a minute, this this can't be right. This person right. wasn't even in town at this wasn't even in the country at this point. <laughs> so um, you know again, it doesn't give us a comprehensive list of who played on what but it's a good it's a good rule of thumb you know and right uh you know and there may still be information that comes up that changes that or adds to that you know we don't know research is is for something like this is just always ongoing so um but that that yeah that list really did kind of help keep things in order right and i would take it that um bobby woodlock would be in the derrick and the dominoes bullet point of that yes Um, yes okay all right. However, he was there. He was. He and Eric were there from the beginning. Right. Um, so I don't know. You know, I want to. I want to emphasize that um, they were because because he came over before uh, Jim Gordon and Carl Radel to mm-hmm. you know to work with Eric and start forming that band. And they discussed who was going to be in that band. And their pick for drummer was that for was actually Jim Keltner. Oh, which I don't know if right. it's a separate story that we want to get into and talk about this, how all that sort of develops. But that was another thing I discovered is that uh, how Derek and the Lamos came together and how Jim Gordon sort of became the drummer for that band. That's, it's, that's not a news story necessarily, but the order in which that happened and the proximity to that first gig they had on June 14th. And there is a maneuvering, all, right? There's a, yes. I mean, there's a politics to it that's interesting because it has very significant ramifications for Derek and the Dominoes. And what I think would most would argue is their, their single masterwork of a song. <laughs> right. Because Keltner, as far as I understand, did not date Rita Coolidge. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. How, how about a Beatles question? 
did Phil Collins play on the All Things Must Pass album? And what about the joke played on him? Yes. He, he <laughs> did indeed. We tell the story of the joke in the book. And I also, I don't think he's on Art of Dying. I think he's on Wawa. The first day where Spectre is packing the studio with musicians. And it's the only song on the album that has congas on it. Mm. Uh, ne- neither the, the bootleg outtake uh, or take one, which you can hear on the box set, take nine, which has been bootlegged, or the, the master take has congas on it. Um, but it is on Wawa. So I, to me, it makes sense that he plays on that date. Well, I was on Wawa also. I don't know if you knew. I was eight, I was like eight years old. I traveled back in time and was on it too. So don't tell me. Yeah. I'll be that making... joke they played on him was brilliant, though. Yeah. That was yeah. absolutely yeah. brilliant. <laughs> Get the book. Mm. Yep, that's yeah. right. Get the book and you'll read all about it. <laughs> we we actually had a we had part of an unpublished interview with Phil Collins. Not really anything new, just a little different angle on it from a music journalist who I believe George set up in order to play that joke on Phil Collins. He used him as sort of the contact man. Mm, and wow. and and so that journalist sent me the interview and we went back and forth. Um just that was just a little a little you know extra detail. Wait, so this was elaborate. Oh yes, no, I, <laughs> I I think he planned this out. Um, My goodness. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's a sense of humor. Yes. So just sense of humor right there. Absolutely. Uh, Ken, what? Uh, how about you? Yeah, I just want to clarify because you know, for all the people over the years who, while they love all things must pass, they've kind of soured on Phil Spector and his wall of sound production and everything when you when you discuss what you have in your book and you just mentioned this jason how involved george was uh in the overall production and in everything and in the overdubbing and yet there are moments in this book where i I think it's gary brooker says that phil Spector was in control how much do you uh attribute to george or, or to phil for the overall sound did did one really dominate the other Klaus told me it was more of a partnership, a collaboration. And I, just the other day, uh, I kept reading these things about despectorization of all things must pass. And I just thought, okay, I've had enough. <laughs> I've got to say, so I did this, you know, 21 tweet thread on Twitter talking about, you know, what, what we're talking about when we talk about the production of this album. So there, there are three phases. There's the tracking sessions, there are the overdubs, uh, first part of that is George and his slide guitar and, and the vocals. And then the last part of that is the, the orchestral part. And then you have the mixing. So all three of these play a part in, in fashioning the sound of this record. Spectre was in the studio working in the control room, working like he worked at Gold Star in Los Angeles, where he would, you know, he would fill the studio with musicians. He would have two or three pianos. He would have several guitars. He would not have two drums and two basses on a track. Alan White and Klaus Woolman both told me they didn't play with anybody else at the same time. Um, but he would stack these instruments and he would create he would create a dense arrangement by doing this. And uh, because they were working on eight track tape, you have 12 people in the studio and you're leaving maybe a couple of those tracks open for vocals, you're gonna be limited to five or six tracks. So you have to double up tracks. If you have several instruments on a track, you're not gonna demix that. That's that's the sound of the, of the recording. Mm. The only thing you can do is EQ. You can bring things down in the mix. You can bring things up in the mix. You can 
add overdubs to it. You can put reverb on it. You can put echo, you know, all sorts of different effects, but you're not going to demix those individual tracks that might have several instruments. So when people talk about despectorizing this album, I think some of what they're talking about is taking out the reverb, but, you know, George and Ken were really sort of signing off on that. Ken Scott said, you know, he, he was the one, uh, he, he and George were, were really sort of making the final decision. Spectre would come in and make suggestions and uh, they would take some and, and reject others. But, and I, I think he certainly had an impact. I don't think his, his style of recording basic tracks, uh, I, think, I think that was sort of built into the, to how things were gonna turn out eventually. But, you know, you have Art of Dying and you have Wawa, which a lot of people may think have too much reverb, but then you also have My Sweet Lord and you have Isn't It a Pity? So, you know, where do we land on this? You know, it, is it all bad or is it, you know, are you going to pick and choose? Like, if you're going to say Spectre had his fingers in all of this and influenced all of this and, and this, is, this determines the sound of the record, then, you know, how do you, how do you parse that up? I mean, I, I think those original mixes are exciting. You know, maybe Art of Dying does have a little bit too much reverb on it. But um, I, think, I think, you know, at the time, that's what George wanted. And we also have to think of context because Bridge Over Troubled Water, it, you know, the climax of that song has a tremendous amount of reverb on it, hmm. as does the boxer. So it's not like this is an anomaly in 1970. You know, it's in vogue. Yeah. 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 So, so uh, you know, it's not strictly what Spectre wants. Um, you know, there's a whole world of music going on out there. Um, was it, was it so, only later, you think, that George started to kind of regret it and say that he kind of wanted to get some of that wall of sound, if you will, off, not so much in the, at the time, but in later years, because it seemed like he was making comments that he would have liked to try to. Well, yeah, when he, when, he, when he went back 30 years later, I think he, he thought, well, you know, maybe maybe I want to remix some of this. But obviously, at the time, he signed off on it like that. Mm -hmm. If he and Ken Scott are mixing these things and making the final decision because Spectre is becoming less and less reliable, then, you know, he had to like it at the time. He had to think this is going to work. And it also plays into this sort of like, I'm making a massive statement. Yeah, sure. You know, there's a there's also a, a pretty well subscribed to theory and textual studies about, you know, it's, and it's come up a couple of times in thinking about Phil Spector and these recordings, you know, there may be a, a clamor to despectorize. And is that like having a tattoo removed or is it... <laughs> right. is it yeah, um, that's for a different tweet storm. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, there's this school of thought that, you know, when it, whether the text is a play or, you know, a, a novel or in this case, an album, um, you know, the, the, the way that the public first receives and valorizes, validates that text is what's important. And, you know, the world pretty sizably held up all things must pass on its shoulders and said, you are number one. This is the text. Mm. You know, uh, the same argument could be made for uh, a song that, that same year that, that had a lot of stress and debate about it. Long and Winding Road, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, McCartney obviously is espoused having issues with that song over the years, but that thing was number one. You know, and uh, for a lot of people, it was it was the right soundtrack for the end of the Beatles. You know, that kind of downbeat wistfulness. 
that, that sort of note. So, um, you know, we have to remember that in that moment, the world held up all things must pass and said, you're the one. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, Ken, because I've been de I've been defending Phil Spector for for quite a while. And I do believe that even though I've, I've said time and time again, the song matters more than the production. The production on All Things Must Pass is part of the reason, a very good part of the reason why it was the success that it was. Yes. I really think that that it was a masterpiece. It was one of the, the last great statements that Phil Spector made as a producer. And uh, same thing with The Long and Winding Road. I don't think the song would have been nearly as big if it didn't have, you know, that orchestral arrangement to it. To some people it was overdone, but hey, the public spoke. It was number one and they loved it the way that it was. And sometimes there's too much of an emphasis on how people feel today and not right. giving the respect of what made it a success in the first place. Right. So well, I think I they could have gone on, gone on a 45 doing Rodney Dangerfield impersonations and it still would have gone number one at that point in time. Well, I agree wholeheartedly. Long and winding road. I agree wholeheartedly with, I mean, it's part I always loved it with the string, you know, uh, and, and uh, what Spectre did. That's, I'm a fan of the Let It Be album as it was originally, you know, done by Spectre. Yeah, but there were several singles the Beatles had in America oh, that, that didn't, that didn't number hit one. number one. Yep, that's I mean, right. Lady Madonna didn't hit number one here. Yeah. Ballad of John and Yoko didn't hit number one here. You shouldn't just assume that anything yeah. the Beatles did would go to number one. <laughs> yeah. Because it didn't. Of course. Of course. Um, could I just ask a few questions about My Sweet Lord because... Um, we've all uh, read that the, the background vocals were the, um, the George O'Hara singers. And I've always been told that that was George and only George and layers and layers of George. Right. And, um, you know, I, I even emailed Ken Scott about this and he said, you're absolutely right. It's all George. But yet, um, you know, doesn't it say the, the names of two women? I keep forgetting their names. Cyril, Bet, I think. Betty and Cyril. Yeah. yeah. Is there anybody well, he, else in, that was involved with the backing vocals? Or? He mentions that in his, in the notes for the 30th anniversary edition, but he doesn't say what songs they performed on. Hmm. So, and I don't have any other detail about who they were, what that means, anything. So who knows who that's referring to? Um, but yeah. yeah, Ken Scott said, said uh, you know, that that was all George and talk, we talked about the process for doing that in the book. And Chris Thomas said he brought over the Moog to record, you know, overdub something at Trident. And, and he, he heard that and he said, wow, who's that? And George says, that's all me. So, yeah. you know, to me on My Sweet Lord, that's pretty clear to have, to have two people who were there say, you know, that's what, that's what it was. Excellent. Imagine all the work that was poured into that for the backing <laughs> vocals. <laughs> I would have loved to witness that, George mm. working on that. Intense. Um, yeah. Also, can you verify? I mean, we're uncertain about certain, th about certain things, but all my life, I thought My Sweet Lord had Ringo on drums. And I, I just saw a video with Bobby Whitlock saying it's Ringo. <laughs> and I've interviewed Alan White, and he says he's the drummer. So yes. would you believe the actual drummer? It's it's actually neither. It's Andy White. <laughs> <laughs> what no, is Ringo? Very good. It's Bernard Purdy. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking oh, that. Yeah, Bernard yeah. Purdy. Andy Nichols. No, it's good. <laughs> no. Uh, Alan White told me that he was on drums. Uh, he, here's 
now this is somebody who wasn't there but who knows Ringo's drumming really well uh, a journalist I talked to recently had spoken to Jim Keltner and Jim Keltner said I know Ringo's drumming Ringo's drumming anywhere that sounds like Ringo on my sweet lord oh. so for the book I went with what Alan White told me because he had a very specific vivid memory of of saying, I don't think I should be on the song. I think it should be Ringo. And George saying, no, I want you on the song. Mm. And then as he's playing, he can see Ringo, you know, to the left of him playing tambourine. Right. So, um, and, you know, Ringo apparently just doesn't have a very good memory of any of these sessions. Um, yeah. So, you know, asking him isn't, isn't necessarily <laughs> to solve this, this issue. Um, and people tend to remember what they played better than what was going mm. on in the room around them um <laughs> so yeah it's tough it's tough to say like okay well let's get a let's get a consensus of opinion here on who played you know who, who played drums on this track let's ask everybody yeah you it's know, not so, very very well chronicled is it uh, right yeah who play who who played what on it's so on odd with all with this many musicians that were on there that they just didn't they didn't bother maybe because there was too many people well no that's what it was john i interviewed uh, john lecky who was second engineer who would have been responsible for writing all that down there was just mm -hmm. too much he mm -hmm. you know you can't keep up with it mm. okay joe do you have a question Oh, do I have a question? Oh no, I'm not at the moment. <laughs> is it, is it possible that somebody played that that would somebody would admit to playing on a song, but then it was mixed low, and then somebody else may have, you know, replaced that particular, you know, part. It. Yeah, sure, overdubbed it. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, uh, I don't know how much. I mean, with the Beatles, a lot of that stuff was much better documented. Like, a, you know, this was kind of a free-for-all in some sense right. and that you know a lot of things were happening and maybe not all of it was written down definitely not all of it was written down right so yeah certainly so, uh, you know somebody might have recorded a part and then i mean one good example that i can verify is chris thomas played Moe on isn't it a pity version one and he has you know told me stories about that session and it's it's notated in the uh i think it's in the uber box it talks about um, how that part is is then overdubbed over like something is recorded on top of that okay so so chris played that and he has a vivid memory of the session and who was there and and uh you know his his reaction to what was happening in the control room afterward but uh we don't hear the part because it was it was erased you know right. they decided they wanted something else so somebody claiming that they played just about every track on there could have been overdubbed at some point afterwards possibly possibly yeah and how how much was bobby whitlock there uh, <laughs> you know, i wonder well i mean he that's, I a, that's a top a couple of people asked questions uh i would notice the early the first question was about bobby whitlock actually well, so they, I, he he and clapton were available from the very beginning uh i have that in that list in the book the the question is for me is that weak uh, week and a half leading up to their gig at the Lyceum on the 14th. Clapton has a session that he's producing on, on June 10th for P.P. Arnold. He ostensibly is going to produce an album for her, which never materializes. But on that day, he and Bobby Whitlock uh, are, are working at that session, while George is, is in Abbey Road recording the song, All Things Must Pass. Um, 
so maybe they finished with that and went over later and they played on it or they overdubbed something the next day you know are they they might be on backing vocals on that mm. um but that's also the date where jim gordon is supposed to have shown up and carl doesn't show up because he gets lost on the way from the airport um so if so this is this is june 10th uh that would rule them out for earlier sessions mm. I think Jim Gordon, I think they were, they were there maybe a few days earlier than that, um, based on various evidence that I've, I've found since then. Um, so it's unclear, but it doesn't seem like they were there from the very beginning. It seems like they sort of trickled in. But Bobby and Eric were definitely there from the start. Whether they were there on every session, it's, it's unclear. But I think they were on a lot of sessions. Hmm. I've watched uh, a number of Bobby's videos and I'm pretty sure he said that um, the songs that Pete Drake was on, I think he didn't play on. Mm. And Peter Frampton, I think, played acoustic guitar right. for the songs that Pete Drake played on. So that would be Behind That Locked Door and I Live For You, I guess, yeah. I'm guessing, right? Right. And I mean, he's there for a week and he, he that's, that's that week just before the... Uh, um the lyceum date Which so becomes this kind of bookend yeah right right mm. so um and that again that june 10th is is right in the middle of that so i also don't hear any any part for eric on those acoustic sessions i mean we we talk about that's that's sort of a separate little island within the all things must pass sessions where you have these big productions at the beginning wawa and my sweet lord and isn't it pity and then he sort of you know quiets down and he has, he has, um, I live for you. And he has, if not for you, and behind that locked door, mm -hmm. and, and apple scruffs. Know, yeah, well, apple scruffs is later, but mm -hmm. he has, he has these, you know, these, these sort of acoustic things, and they clearly seem built for Pete Drake. I think he's planned this out. He's he's planned that he wants this sound, and, uh, but I, you know, I don't, I don't hear a role for Eric Clapton. There's no lead guitar. I mean, he conceivably could have been just strumming acoustic guitar, but why would right. you do that? You know. Right. Um, so you know, that's a question mark. I can't answer that definitively, but to me, it sort of makes sense that he wouldn't be there. Uh, Joe, any more? A uh, couple more viewers. Well, uh, uh, Mark once was asking, "Doesn't Pete Drake play on the title track?" Yes, yes, he does. He okay. he he overdubbed his part. And now when it says, what was the, so Beatle had asked, what was the last song they played on? But at this, that's a, a question, uh, was a question before this. So I don't, I'm not sure who in particular he's referring to, uh, who they uh, might be. I've been keeping these pretty uh, uh, up to the moment, these questions. Okay. So there's no, nothing okay. really in the back. Okay. Just wanted to make sure we weren't missing any. Okay. I'll go back and look. You know. Okay. All right. Well, while you're doing that, uh, one thing we, we wanted to be sure to touch on, because the way our, our schedule has been going, we weren't able to, you know, really address it, is recently uh, the 50th anniversary of the concert for Bangladesh uh, occurred. And, and uh, um, you know, because it's not really the focus of your book, you, you didn't go into it too much, but I, you know, definitely wanted uh, to touch on it. And we actually just discussed it a little bit. I think it it was uh, you know really showed uh, their friendship, uh, the strength of their friendship. That you know George is 
you know, at the peak of his powers at, at this point, organizing uh, this, uh, that, uh, thank you. Thank you, Tom. He's um, always ready. <laughs> <laughs> yep, always ready to go. Uh, you know, just uh, what organized what became this, this historic uh, concert that would inspire so many after it. And at this point, um, you know, of course, Eric is struggling with, uh, with drugs, with, with alcohol. And um, you can describe a little bit what, uh, what happened when, uh, when George, uh, George invited Eric to uh, play at Bangladesh. I'll let Ken take that one. I've been talking too much. Well, All right. <laughs> as we said, he was an absolute wreck. And uh, I mean, really, it was it was deep coaxing from from the Harrisons uh, to get him on that stage, you know, um, and it, it it really begins this uh, extensive period where Eric, you know, disappears into himself um, for for years. Uh, really until he comes out of it and uh, perhaps he was doing the soul searching or the uh, the drug abuse uh, that had come about from 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 low those many years but it's uh, it's this it's the sad underbelly of of Bangladesh you know to me to my ears at least but what a triumph you know um uh, I, I had occasion recently to watch a, a really pristine version of, of that footage, and it's just marvelous. Um, you know, what a, what a period George is having um, in those, those first, uh, those, that first sweep of post Beatledom. Um, it's, a, it's a rousing story really is and that the, the band the the you know and as george's voice was just a peak form i mean right and by his own admission um you know he'd really learned how to sing he, he wasn't comfortable with his vocals uh in previous years as he was in 1969 and 1970 his ability to be expressive um ha ha was head over heels uh heads and shoulders rather above where he was earlier i mean not only that i mean you know i would imagine it was just, it would be tough alone just trying to get clapped in there but then he now he's also trying to persuade dylan to get up on stage as well <laughs> you know even when he's backstage he's still he's still trying to coax dylan to get out there yeah mm -hmm. that's right yeah exactly um, uh, that uh, question before, uh, we led was Eric and George, what was the last song they played on? I don't know if you mean, if you mean it all ever, <laughs> just, you know, uh, anybody I, know? Yeah. I don't know what the last song was. Hmm. Was um, he on? Ken, live in know? Japan. Live I in don't Japan. know. I wish I, I, I feel unprepared now. I, yeah. I feel yeah. Uh, some research coming on. Yeah. <laughs> Next I mean, book. In, in, in the studio. Studio wise, it would have been Cloud Nine. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, whatever. the songs from Cloud Nine, Devil's Radio. Right, yeah. right. Maybe. That's what yeah. it takes. Yeah. He's on there. Yeah, I don't think mm. he's on Brainwashed. No, he's not. No. 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 Well, there you go. So it's got to be. And, and um, well, George played on Journeyman, Eric Clapton's album for Run oh, So Far. Oh, yeah. But that was the same year. Wait a minute. No. No, Journeyman, Journeyman was, was 89. 89. So that yeah. was after Cloud Nine. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 
Oh. See, this kind of analysis is what makes the talk more talk uh, colleagues really sing. <laughs> you know, I hope people have, watch that. Is you gotta, yeah, you gotta talk it out. Memories come back. You know, that's right. <laughs> but don't encourage any of us to sing, though. Right. Really no, sing. just don't. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. need to. I need to ask you guys: Can you verify whether or not John Lennon was present at all during the All Things Was Past sessions? Because there have been rumors. When I asked Alan White, he said no. John Lennon was not in the country during the tracking sessions for All Things Must Pass. Okay. He, was in, he was in Los Angeles undergoing primal therapy. He returned um, sometime in September, by which point George was mixing. And Bobby Whitlock has a memory of seeing John at the sessions. And I, I think that he's probably referring to sometime early October when, when George and John would have been at Abbey Road as John was working on Plastic Ono Band um, and Derek and the Dominoes would have had a break in touring. That's the only time all, of, all three of those people could have been in the same room in mm. that year. And so if, if that's true, and I have no reason to doubt Bobby Woodlock's memory about this because you would remember meeting John Lennon, um, I think I, my gut tells me that they were probably listening to mixes of the album. And that's where John, you know, would have would have you know responded positively and, and had his, you know, probably been surprised that it turned out this well. Um, mm. I, you know, I can't say one way or the other, but that to me is where John Lennon would have would have been able to be present during this process. Okay. Yep. Um, I do want to bring up one thing which I found really interesting um, that George was present for seven sessions of Phil Spector working on Let It Be, which I had yeah. heard before. Yeah. And also, well, that... oh, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. Um, and we had heard that Paul was wrapping up his, his album, McCartney, at the same time at Abbey Road Studios in a different studio. Right. So it's really interesting that George was there with, with Phil Spector. It's, I just find it fascinating that they were in the same room listening to the Let It Be stuff together. Yeah, yeah. You kind of wonder, like, did, were they aware of each other? Was it just this sort of, like, don't ask, don't tell situation? What was going on there? You know, I, like, like several of you, I spent time there, and I, I find it hard to believe that you're not taking a smoke break or a coffee yeah. break or, <laughs> or running tea. down to the canteen yeah. or the bathroom or what have you. You know, it's... It's not that big a place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. Okay, we have a question here also, if I may. Uh, Harry G. Benson asking, uh, was any member of Badfinger involved with the recording or was it just the concert for Bangladesh? Oh, no, they were there. You were um, there, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they had to leave on tour. Um, one source I've said so, said, I, one source I saw said the 4th of June. I believe there were, they were maybe there a couple of more days. They, ha they had to be in Honolulu on the 8th. So whatever it took, however long it took them to get there, they had to leave before that mm -hmm. date uh, because they were performing at a, at a Capitol Record Convention event. Um, but for those first sessions, they were definitely there. Yeah, they're credited as rhythm guitars and percussion. Right. 
So most, yep. they, you know, that's them strumming on My Sweet Lord and, mm. uh, along with George. And that was a fascinating story you told about that. I, mean, I don't want to say too much about it because you, you got to read. <laughs> I know we've said over and over, you yeah, got to read, read the book. Read the but, book. But there's a there's a fascinating story in it about how how much work it took to record that song and, and right. the guitar is part of that. Um, yeah. you know, just just one of, of many uh, fascinating stories and in, in book. It, this was just such perfect timing that that it came this this book came out when it did because when you listen to the 50th anniversary set, no matter which version you you uh you got and you read this and you mm-hmm. learn about the making of it i mean you really listen to the album in a different way uh i mean certainly that's the case with me i mean you really appreciate more just just the sheer amount of work it, it took to to make this album uh, mm-hmm. the, the time and and again just what an important statement this was for george to make and and the huge risk he was taking yeah. making this this album so it's it's just uh just an incredible incredible book um, thank you really thank enjoyed you. it yeah. did really. uh do you guys butt heads on anything do you guys pretty much get along during the whole process <laughs> oh this should be good <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to have a book about that yeah <laughs> no we we i think we we had some different vision that seeing where each other was going helped us to kind of head off different things that might have occurred at the past i think i i don't know it might have sprawled in other sorts of directions if that makes sense yeah i mean i i don't a couple of death threats i mean really just (laughs) nothing worth talking about we were just we were fortunate to be indoors in this tough time and <laughs> yes you know yes like i, I mean, said in I reality was... you know this book should have been an afterthought to the the release of the the all things must pass box set right right the timing is this just it happened to work out this way right. our let it be book uh, is going to be out um, <laughs> two weeks from now <laughs> Or twenty twenty three coming out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Well, as soon as we find a way to break down the uh, the multi tracks, so that we can mix it. I'm sorry, that's not me. That's Giles. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I get us confused all the time. Ah, nice. <laughs> oh man, would you be able to give us your opinion as to why, for something like this, um, they don't rely on the past engineers that worked on the album? Ken Scott and Phil McDonald, or do you think it's just a case of we need fresh ears now? This is for the new generation who are discovering this possibly, what their thinking might be? I wish, you know, that's a that's such a great question. And I've heard from some of the, the folks from the past who wonder, you know, you know, really prominent folks who wonder, you know, are they being excluded? What is, what's the thinking there? And I've heard an adequate an adequate argument necessarily yeah it's really strange i mean the even the uh the picture of uh from above in the, the white album sessions where it's george and the beatles and chris thomas is often there to the left in the uncropped picture they crop chris thomas out of the picture mm. in the book mm. um wow. you know i, I that doesn't make any sense 
uh, I don't understand why why he was he was an important part of making that album. Right, of course. He's probably so the I only one who remembers it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has, and he has great memories of it too. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they this it's their it seems to be their rule that they don't do new interviews for these projects. Mm. Yeah. Mm. which leaves it to us to do the interviews which is fine you know i'm happy there to you go call klaus <laughs> and <laughs> talk to him about this yeah, are these people yeah, interviews. yeah i mean have the these book. guys been willing to talk to you about that? i mean talk about some of the people that you guys interviewed for the book <laughs> i mean yeah i mean some people uh i didn't hear we didn't hear back from um i i had wished i could talk to dave mason about working oh, with Derek yeah. and the Dominoes, but right. didn't hear back from him, didn't hear back from Gary Wright, but but Klaus was very generous with his time, Alan White, uh, John Leckie, who was the second engineer. Uh, Ironically, sessions. I am talking to Dave Mason this week. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not making this up. Hmm. Well, uh, but um, ask him about the album. <laughs> right. I will. In fact, Recall on the books. We got to get yeah, Dave Mason's. Yeah, will. <laughs> get him back. I'll send you a page to sort of tip in. You can... Right. For a, for a moment, we were getting a really great response from Phil Spector um, via email, and uh, but it he he was very very much less interested in answering questions about all things must pass, and more interested in talking about you know sort of reconsidering his recent legal case, mm. which wasn't sure. as you know the subject of this book. <laughs> no, nope, afraid not. Uh, also, if you talk to Dave Mason, you could ask him about a track uh, he did called "Save Me" from 1980 that Michael Jackson sang back up on. Well, that—that's wow. the reason we're talking. Yeah, I, I figured that might be it. Yeah. <laughs> I mention it. Uh, yeah, uh, Peter, Hick, Peter Hicks says, "Add Mason to the paperback edition." Yeah, there you go. There you go. Right. Revised edition. Be, yeah, we, yeah, we second edition. Good, very good point, Peter. And and yeah, we we sort of have a list of things we're gonna we're gonna attack there. Maybe it could be this new Dave Mason. Uh, uh, but yeah. that'll be for the paperback edition of Kit's book. So that's right. right. That'll right. be the second edition. Yeah, that's right. No, <laughs> I I can't stop researching. So someone needs to come and and. Uh pull me aside and put me in a closet or something because i just keep finding it was stuff. like what lennon said about uh harrison and specter one was continuing to add you know yes. instruments you know i was adding yes. production yes someone can yeah. come by with a tranquilizer gun and shoot me that'd be great <laughs> <laughs> plus you could use the sleep i, mean, I yeah. absolutely yes there you go oh boy well we probably should be wrapping this up. I mean, I can't believe how fast the time has, has flown here, but uh, I mean, we could go on and on uh, uh, talking about this, but, uh, but really this, again, this is such a great book for once I can, I have it to show and tell here as well. Look at this. Let's all hold it up. Yeah. Mine's in the other room, you know? No, no. Have it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, all things must pass away. Harrison <laughs> Clapton and other assorted. <laughs> uh, hold up that yeah, gnome, Ken. Come on. Kit needs can... that. Kit needs it. Oh, I want Here's the gnome. big boy. Oh, oh, my favorite. Oh, I got one last question from Walmack there. Is he going oh, yeah. for this hairstyle there? And will the mustache follow? <laughs> I don't know what you mean, Tom. <laughs> oh my.
my goodness. So, uh, so uh, Jason and Ken, thank you so much for joining us again. It was an absolute pleasure. And we loved talking to you all about this book. And, and of course, anytime you want to come back, you are always welcome here. We love having you here. Yes. And Oh, absolutely. And since you are our guest, um, why don't you start, uh, Jason, uh, what, uh, what do you have coming up uh, that you'd like us to know about besides this book? Well, there's always Producing the Beatles, which uh, you can, it's a podcast, obviously, and you can find that everywhere podcasts are found. You can also go to the website, producingthebeatles.com. And I, to answer everyone's most favorite question, I am working on new episodes. Uh, season two is, <laughs> is coming, I promise. Hey. Uh, two bonus before, episodes. Before volume two of Tune In, right? Yes, before volume two. <laughs> That's a pretty safe Every- bet for, for everything. <laughs> um, and I'll be doing an episode on My Sweet Lord and the making of My Sweet Lord and an episode on Isn't It a Pity? Okay. Uh, I, I had a composer in the UK um, recreate the scores for for both songs from John oh, Barb's wow. manuscripts, which are in the the end papers of the book. So right. I'll be I'll be able to play isolated scores of both those songs, in addition to the other tracks, to and, and George's isolated vocals and sort of the regular thing I do. So wow, yeah, keep an eye out for that. And those, uh, you know, a quick word on those isolations. I've been fortunate to hear them, and we're using them in our presentations we're gearing up for this fall. They're just beautiful. They really add, a, add layers of, of bliss uh, to our understanding of this record. I mean, uh, some of them are still in heavy rotation on my playlist, I'll tell you that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's... You kind of oh, wish, wish they'd been included in the box set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Oh, one, one, nice? one part of Isn't It a Pity, uh, one section may not have even been recorded. I'm not... John Barham couldn't remember, but he thinks either it wasn't recorded or it's mixed so low you can't hear it. So uh, you'll be able to hear that now in the, in the isolations. Oh. Yeah. Cool. All right. So something to look forward to. Well, definitely looking forward to that. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. All right. Ken W., how about you? I'm trying you? to, I'm keeping busy, you know, I'm doing uh, my own everything <laughs> Fab Four podcast for salon.com and um I've been doing a Fab Four masterclass with our all of our mutual friends, Scott Fryman. Uh, so we've been having a lot of fun with that uh, all throughout the pandemic. I've been offering record clubs here at Monmouth University and, and the like, and it's really been great, uh, a great experience to be involved in this, this wonderful community of, of listeners. We all uh, are really privileged to know uh, and, uh, and share experiences with. Um, not just about Beatles things, but about, you know, loving music and, and the arts. So, uh, you know, for all of our, our challenges during this period, it's been really gratifying. That's for sure. Where can people find you if they want to uh, contact you? Oh, they can find me at kennethwomack.com. All right. I'm and Jason- in some, some fashion. All <laughs> right. And Jason, how about you? Do you have a, a website? Just producing the Beatles.com. That's the best way to find me. And you can follow me on Twitter at PT Beatles. Fantastic. All right. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Ken. Uh, and for us, you can uh, follow us at talkmoretalk.com, um, on Twitter at uh, talkmoretalk1, the number one. You can also email us at talkmoresolotalk at gmail.com. Uh, you, of course, can find us on uh, YouTube and please subscribe 
getting more and more subscribers yeah. as, as time goes on. Yeah. We're over yeah. a thousand. We're excited. So let's let's keep this going. Keep this train moving. So uh, so please subscribe. Uh, you, of course, can find us on virtually any podcasting platform you can think of. Uh, subscribe there as well. And you can find us on Facebook. And we also want to give a big shout out to Beetle Ed, who runs our show on fab4radio.com. So big, big thumbs up to him. He runs a lot of our shows, in fact, so our individual shows. So thank you so much. Um, And uh, we will be back August 23rd with, of course, our take on the All Things Must Pass box set. So this was, that'll be a great, great show. Uh, I think, I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to say. (laughs) More and more all the time. Yeah. That's a fair bet. Is Um, there going, uh, Kid, is there going to be a separate show on Bobby Whitlock? Is that (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that may have to happen. (laughs) There was a lot to say there as well. Uh, (laughs) One never knows. One never knows. Well, as long as we don't have to pay him. As long as we have to pay them, that's right. There you go. And uh, and as for me, uh, the only thing uh, I'll just mention is uh, coming up next month, I have my class I'm teaching on Philly Soul uh, through Monmouth University's uh, adult ed program. You still have time to sign up. I'll have the link uh, after the show. I'll put it up. I have it on my page. I'll have it on uh, our Talk More Talk page. If you love the OJs, the stylistics, um, the three degrees this is the class for you it sure uh, is and, and i, I can it. tell everybody that kiddo tool is rapidly becoming the queen of adult rock music education <laughs> <laughs> qrm yeah qrme okay okay <laughs> why are are we laughing that's it that's actually a good thing (laughs) (laughs) laughing through joy that's right that's right right. because every week we find something else that she's the queen of that's that's why we're laughing yeah no no i i I know it's a couple but yeah there's there's what is it yeah beatles media lipstick i forget what else backgrounds 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 so it's it's adding up yeah. So <laughs> well, since you're queen of lipstick, I, I'm going to let that one go. I, okay. <laughs> I had some aspirations. but no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's taken. So <laughs> it's fine. All right. So, Tom, how about you? What are you up to? Thank you. Well, in the two two legs world, we are taking uh, August off. We just decided that we had a lot going on in our personal lives and um Actually, you know, Andy's coming out here in, uh, in a couple of weeks and we're going to hang out and with all, as well as our good pal, Ethan Alexanian, we're just going to have a, mm. a crazy time and uh, have a lot of fun. But uh, two weeks, about a week and a half ago, we posted our last new episode and we res- revisited the Live at the Cavern Club DVD set. So we had a lot of fun talking about that whole period in time. And uh, yeah, so you can um, you know find us on our YouTube, Two Legs, a Paul McCartney podcast. We just passed 700 subscribers, so thank you everybody for for uh, subbing and, and checking us out. Um, we love uh, hearing from you guys, and we got a lot of new um, series planned for the future. Live shows, we'll um, probably live on Wednesday to give our thoughts on the McCartney Three Imagined um, album, and um, like I said, a lot of things uh, coming up in the future. So once again, thank you everybody for checking us out instagram twitter and facebook at two legs podcast and uh hopefully we'll see you there all right always busy 
Always keep them busy. All right. Okay, Joe, how about you? What are you up to? Well, uh, I'm doing a lot of stuff about the All Things Must Pass remix that just came out on my channel on YouTube. Mean Mr. Mayo, if you want to subscribe. Um, I was just on the Sam Wiles uh, podcast, Paul or Nothing, where I <laughs> participated in his ongoing series, uh, Maca in Your Attic, where you show some interesting McCartney memorabilia. And uh, I should be doing another Fab Gab show live, uh, possibly uh, this coming uh, Sunday in a week or so. Uh, and it's going to be all Things Must Pass songs ranked from least favorite to most favorite wow. with my uh, partner on the show, Matthew Street. So check Does out that include the Gap. Apple Jam. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> no, not, we're not including the Apple Jam, actually. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was say, that's well, tough. Then, just then no, just no. a regular yeah. song. No, no thanks for the pepperoni, then. No. <laughs> thanks for the heartburn. Yeah. No remembering. <laughs> yeah. There you go. All right. And last but definitely not least, Ken, how about you? What are you up to? Uh, first of all, my website, kenmichaelsradio.com. As you know, every week there's Beatles trivia. That's posted. I have four new prizes in the last few weeks to wow. give away. You have a choice of one of 10. And one of them happens to be the book that we've been what? talking about. I just got a winner, by the way. <laughs> you can give yeah. it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can. And uh, we had a winner from Florida who guessed oh. uh, last week's uh, Beatles trivia. I'm also giving away a new book called Beatles 100, 100 Pivotal Moments in Beatle history from John Borak. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, McCartney 3 Imagined, I'm giving away, and the new Ram on Tribute. So that's at kenmichaelsradio.com. Uh, the trivia runs from Monday through Sunday. And I guess, uh, well, I have one winner every single week, and they pick one of those 10 prizes that are on that page, my Beatles trivia and games page. Also, <laughs> Oh, I, I see the gnome right next to you. I thought you're holding it up there, kid. <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish. Okay. <laughs> no gnomes for kids. No gnomes for kids. No. <laughs> oh, I wish I had a gnome. Anyway, the young, the young podcaster, Hudson Ranny. I was on two of his podcasts, one of which is called I Know I Know. And together we interviewed youth the producer, and we talked about his work with McCartney on the Fireman albums. Check that out at I Know I Know. That's the name of his podcast. He also started a brand new one called P2 Podcast Blues. That's a solo Harrison podcast. And I got the gang from Things We Said Today to be on that podcast, along with Hudson and Martin Quibble, who who is his co-host. And we talked about George's Gontrapo album. So check that out at P2 Podcast Blues. Um, also, my own YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio. I just interviewed Joe's co-host, Matthew Street. And we did a Fab Five show together. Where I just uh, watched it. Yeah, oh. great episode. I watched it too. Very interesting choices. That's all I'll say. Oh, definitely. Ringo's choice surprised me. And Paul, the, the choice for Paul was surprising. Mm-hmm. That's when I asked my guests to pick five albums, one Beatles, w- one from each solo Beatle that are your go-to albums for today that you're listening to, for whatever the reason, and explain why. And then there's things we said today. We just did a show reviewing uh, just the audio 
from uh, All Things Must Pass, the box mm. set. And then our next show, which happens to be on the 23rd, we'll be interviewing these two fine gentlemen, <laughs> Ben Womack and Jason Krupa. And we'll be talking about the book, so there'll be plenty more questions. And I'll be doing that on my YouTube channel as well. I just hope they don't get sick of me. <laughs> well, and, and actually, Ken, to make sure they don't get sick of us, Jason and I are going to do the opposite answers for everything. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> so that's going to take a little rhetorical, you know, gymnastics from us, but we're going to be ready for it. So the opposite will be in vogue. Well, you I'll know, Ken, Ken, you I'll said something in. interesting about you guys are just going to review the audio, but I was going to, I forgot to ask Jason or Ken, do you know if anything was filmed during the, the All Things Must Pass sessions by I chance? I was going to ask that. No, um, okay. but uh, the only yeah. pictures that were taken during the tracking sessions were by Pete Drake. Okay. Uh, he, he brought his camera. So that's where, that's where all these pictures are coming from you see in the books. Okay, thanks. Hmm. So that's what's going on with me. All right. All keeping busy. Okay. Well, thank you again, Jason and Ken. Be sure to pick up this book if you can see it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> all things must pass away. Thank you guys again for being on the show. And thank you all for joining us tonight. We will be back in a couple of weeks. And until then, for Tom, Jason, Ken, Ken, and Joe, this is Kit saying, let it roll. <laughs> See you soon. Bye-bye. Oh, Bye. Sir Frankie Crisps. <laughs> <laughs>